0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Simon said, we are um, going through this uh, atonement series this morning, looking at different theories of atonement. This is week four, um, and Steve's going to conclude it uh, next week by looking at what's called the Christus Victor theory. And I've got the good one today. I've got Penal Substitutionary Atonement Theory, which from now on, I think I'll probably call PSA. Otherwise, it'll be about three o'clock before I get to the end of this talk, and everyone will be desperate to go and get some lunch. So, PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement Theory, not to be confused with PSA, Public Service Announcement, or PSA, pounds per square inch, how much air you should put in your tyres, or PSY, the guy who's the K pop guy who did the Gangnam style. PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement Theory. That is what we're talking about this morning. Um, Before we get to all the proper theology, and I will warn you, there is a lot of proper theology. I've actually read some books this morning. It's not just going to be all stories about the Welsh rugby team, which, you know, some of you might be happy with. Um, Before we get to all that proper theology, um, I'm going to tell you something about our farm. So lots of you will know that just behind that fancy hotel there, we run a community farm. So uh, Rebecca talked about the event that we're going to have on there in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but through the week, Monday to Friday, what we normally do there is that we work with small groups of at-risk teenagers. They're normally kids who are on the verge of exclusion from school. And we bring them to our farm, get them out of the classroom, because for some of these guys, being out of the classroom is already a great start. We do small group work with them. We use uh, therapeutic methods um, to work with these kids. Through We do farming therapy, and also we do um, one-to-one Uh, work with these kids because lots of the time what they need is the work around character development, behaviour management, all that kind of stuff, more so than they need to just do more practice with their maths and English, and so uh, I was over there a while ago with um, one of our old farm managers, a guy called Tim, and uh, I was there for a meeting, and I got there a little bit earlier, and he was just finishing up a group session with some of these guys, and they were all, there was about six or seven, like, 16-year-old lads, you know, they're all about nine foot tall, and they were all in these overalls, having an absolutely fantastic time, turning over the compost and he said "Oh, these guys he said they came in and they were all like hoods up you know AirPods in heads down you know all too cool for all of this you know they weren't going to engage in this farming thing whatsoever and then an hour later you know they're mucking out the sheep and they're doing all this absolutely loving it and he said we've got one more thing to do come with me and so Tim got these guys together And he got the, you know, the ringleader, the biggest one, who was the one who was like, I'm definitely not gonna get involved in this, and had been slowly won around. And he said, hey, um, in that soil over there, there was the green thing that's sticking up. Grab the green thing and pull it. So they all gather around, and he grabs the green thing and he pulls it, and a bunch of carrots come out. And you've never seen such a reaction to a bunch of carrots in your life. All six or seven of these lads, they all jumped back, went, (laughs) whoa! Like they'd found gold. Um, because none of them had any idea that there was going to be a bunch of carrots under there. As far as they knew, carrots came from Morrison's, and they was on a shelf. The idea that you could actually grow them in the ground in central London was totally alien to them. And I was thinking about that story this week. I was reminded of it when I started planning for this talk, because it might seem like a strange thing to pop into your head when you're planning a talk on PSA, but The link is that one of the central ideas about PSA is this idea that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, which got me thinking about sacrifice, which got me thinking about crops, which got me thinking about this group of teenagers. I'll explain why. Where does this idea of Jesus being sacrificed for my sins come from? Well, to answer this, we have to go quite a long way back in human history because the roots of this go back thousands of years to the times when people didn't have much more idea about why and how crops grew than those teenage boys did. Back then your food was whatever grew in the ground in front of you and then over time people started to realize that the weather had a massive impact on this so people realized that you needed sun for these things to grow but not too much sun, otherwise the earth would get parched, and therefore it wouldn't grow properly. So people realized that what you needed was a bit of rain as well, but not too much rain, because if you had too much rain and not enough sun, then that wouldn't work either. So people realized that if your crops were going to grow and you were going to get enough food to eat, then you needed just about the the right amount of rain and the right amount of sun. And what would happen then? is that no one obviously had much of an understanding of meteorology in those days, and they thought that this was all controlled by the gods. So there would be a god of the sun and a god of the rain. So if it was raining too much and it was too wet, you would pray, and then you would sacrifice animals to the god of the sun. And if it was too sunny and there wasn't enough water, then you'd do the opposite thing. You would pray to the god of the rain, and you would sacrifice animals to the god of the rain. They thought that whether they ate or not was dependent on whether whether the gods were happy with them or not, which is why people started sacrificing animals to these gods. So when we get into the period of history that's covered by the Bible at the beginning of the Old Testament, that is where people are in their understanding of God. So in this context, suddenly Paul's reading starts to make a bit more sense, doesn't it? It makes a bit more sense when we read these stories like in Leviticus chapter 7, which is right near the beginning of the Bible, where Moses is giving people laws on how sacrifice should be done to please God. But then we work our way through the Old Testament. And further into the future, we get to verses like this. David's writing in the book of Psalms, Sacrifice and offering, he's talking about God here. Sacrifice and offering, God does not desire. Burnt offering and sin offerings, you have not required. Hang on. God doesn't desire sacrifice. But I thought in Leviticus, it said that he did. Or how about this, a bit further on? The prophet Hosea says, this is again, this is God speaking now, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. What you've been taught about sacrificing animals, that's not what I want. So what's going on here? I don't know about you, but I was told there were no contradictions in the Bible when I was growing up. And there are. What is happening here? Well, in all these verses, God is moving humanity on, I think. Moving people on to a better understanding of who God is and what God wants from them. I don't want you to sacrifice things. I desire steadfast love. I'm about love and life and not death. God is gently nudging humanity forward step by step, encouraging them to let go of this state-of-the-art understanding of who they think God is into a better understanding of who God is and what God wants from them. And yet, despite all of this, some people will still see Jesus' death on the cross as God, needing a sacrifice to appease God's anger. Why is that? Well, it's because of this theory, Penal Substitutionary Atonement Theory, PSA. It's the idea that God can't just forgive sin, God has to punish sin. And God can either punish sin by putting us forever in hell, or God can punish that sin in Jesus on the cross. So if you believe that God punish Jesus for you, then you can be saved and you can get God's forgiveness. God needs the sacrificial blood of Jesus to appease God's anger so that me and you can be forgiven. That's what PSA is. Now, what's interesting is that this is week four of this series looking at various atonement theories, various ways of explaining what Jesus' death on the cross meant. But I'm sure that some of you, like me, grew up thinking that this was the only explanation about what happened on the cross. Anybody else? Anybody else thought this was the only way, that there was no other theory out there? I remember... Um, when I was younger, my church ran a Christian bookshop for a while, and my mother managed that Christian bookshop. And I remember being there with her one night when she was cashing out and reading through one of these tracts, like little small bits of paper that you would give to people to convince them to become Christians, reading through one of those things. I don't know if anyone recognizes this, but it had four points on it, number one, God created me. Number two, I am a sinner. Great thing for a seven-year-old child to read or whatever I was. Number three, Jesus came to die for me. And number four, I need to pray a prayer to thank Jesus for saving me. And if I do that, I'll be okay and I'll go to the good place and not to the bad place. Anybody else recognize that, those four points? Um, Or there was another one which had a picture on that looked a little bit like this. So on the one side, you've got earth which is terrible and on fire and everyone's trying to escape it and then on the other side you've got heaven which is perfect and then the cross is the bridge so everyone can escape earth and go to heaven, I mean there's there's so much theologically wrong with this one apart from anything else it's all about this escape plan that the only reason we're here is to get off earth and get into heaven but this talk's already going to be long enough, we haven't got time to get on with uh, that tonight uh, this morning, so um, the first time I came across a different way of looking at this, the first time I realised that there were other explanations there was uh, in a church that I went to in South Wales. I've talked before about the fact that this church was pretty progressive in its theology before I even understood what progressive theology was. And I remember one Sunday morning, somebody standing up where I'm doing it now and saying that they didn't believe that God died for their sins in the same way that I'd always been taught. And I remember my mind was blown by this. Having only heard this one story, for the first twenty odd years of my life, suddenly somebody is saying, "I don't think God died for my sins hang on did did he did he just say what what I thought he said? Can you really say that in a church? What's all that about And then at the end of the service, we had this little theology library at the back of the church. It was like a couple of bookcases on wheels, and a volunteer would like roll it out and then we'd you know pass out some theology books at the end of the service and then roll it back into the cupboard. And I remember chatting to the guy who organized all of that And he said, oh, you should read a couple of books. And one of the books that he recommended to me was this one. Um, So it's The Lost Message of Jesus. It was probably quite new at the time. Steve wrote it. Um, For those of you who don't know, there's been a bit of a fuss around this book over the last couple of decades or so, because Steve spends much of the last chapter of this book talking about the Christus Victor theory, which he will talk about next week. But he also drops in a couple of lines, that's really all it is, about how and why he doesn't agree with penal substitution. Um, nearly 20 years later, one line from this book still gets shared regularly, and it's often quoted at me when I tell new people where I work. It's this. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he not even committed. This was the line that still gets quoted at me, and the line that got... Steve into a bit of trouble. It wasn't even his line. It was Rita Nakashima Brooke, who was another theologian, a feminist theologian. She wrote this comparing the death of Jesus on the cross to, to abusive relationships back in the 80s. But Steve got into a lot of trouble anyway. When I was reading this book in my little house in Swansea, I had no idea that 200 miles away in London, all of this stuff was going on. The Evangelical Alliance had a a public debate on this topic in October 2004, and 700 people came to it. And then there was a three-day-long symposium at the London School of Theology the next year. 200 people came to that. This book, called Pierced for Our Transgressions, was written in response to Steve's book. It's 350 pages long, and it's just a load of um, more conservative theologians basically saying, I think Steve's wrong, and this is why next chapter. I also think Steve's wrong, and this is why next chapter. Carry on, basically, for the whole thing. Um, as an aside... This is a photo that I took of my copy of Piers for Our Transgressions. And if you look at the side, you'll see there's a little sticker there that says 225 on it. And if you look on the inside, you'll know that it's a library book. And then if you look in the top corner, you'll notice it's a library book from an Oasis library. Um, We used to run the Oasis College, which is where I did my uh, master's and where Rebecca did her undergrad degree in church community work and theology. Um, And as part of that, I always think on a Sunday, we always say that we encourage conversation, here, don't we? We say we encourage debate. We're not just saying, this is my view, you've got to swallow it. We're saying, this is what I think we should have a conversation about this. And I think it's probably quite a good way of summing up that we actually believe that, isn't it? The fact that these, this entire book, 350 pages, was written solely to discredit the founder of the organization, and we bought a copy of it and stuck it in our library. Um, so then what happened was that Steve... As the senior minister of this church stood up in this very building and he preached a sermon which included these words I have long ceased to regard the atonement as a commercial transaction, nor could I think of the compassion of the Son as appeasing the wrath of the Father. Christ is revealed not as appeasing wrath, but revealing love. Oh no, hang on. I've got that wrong. I've got the wrong minister. That was Christopher Newman Hall, who was an old guy who preached here in 1896. He preached in this very room. It looked a bit different. He was probably standing about where Dean is now. And that quote is from a sermon that he gave in May 1896. Christopher Newman Hall, 127 years ago, said that he didn't think of the death of Jesus as appeasing the wrath of the Father. He said, Christ is revealed not as appeasing wrath, but revealing love. I read you that quote because while what Steve wrote was controversial, it was nothing new. In fact, some of these other theories about what happened on the cross are way older than penal substitution. In fact, there's never been one agreed version of what happens on the cross. I think one way of looking at these theories is to answer a question like this one. What's Oasis known for in Waterloo? Is it A, running schools, B, running a church, C, running a food bank, D, giving immigration advice, or E, offering counselling services. Now, if we asked five people in this community that question, they might give you five different answers. They could give any one of these answers, and it would be the right answer, because we do all of those things. And what they know Oasis for in this community will depend on their perspective. All those answers are correct, and each of them tells a little bit of the story about what Oasis does in Waterloo. Or it's like I could be standing with three other people on this path looking at this house. A structural surveyor might say, well, the roof, the chimney, the doors, they look fine. There's no obvious evidence of external damage. An architect might come and look at it and say, oh, yeah, look at the brickwork, look at the roof. This is a classic 1980s, two-story, semi-detached house. An estate agent might be standing next to me and might say, oh, three bedrooms, bathroom, decent-sized garden. I reckon I could sell this house pretty quickly. But I look at it and I say, I don't care about any of that because that's the house I grew up in when I was a child. Trying to work out what happened on the cross is a little bit like that. We're looking at the same thing, but we all see something slightly different in it. Now, penal substitution is one of those theories about what happened on the cross when Jesus died. In modern Western Christianity, it's the most popular theory. But in some other places, like Japan, for example, or in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it isn't part of their understanding of Christianity at all. The thing is that not only is penal substitution a bit different to the other four atonement theories that we will talk about in this series, I would argue that it comes from a totally different place. It's like there was a fifth person standing on the street with us, and actually what they were describing was a tree in the garden instead. Or if another person answered that question about Oasis and said, what I know them for is singing that song, Wonderwall. Why is it so different to all of those other atonement theories? Well, to understand this, we need to understand a bit about where it came from. This is Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century, until he fell out with the king about who the real pope was. The king exiled him, and while he was in exile, he thought, I've got a bit of time now take this opportunity to do a bit of writing. So he wrote a book about what he thought Jesus' death meant. And some said that because God is holy and humans are all inherently sinful, then Jesus needed to be killed as a substitute because a debt had been racked up by humans, so it could only be paid by a human. But because no human being is perfect, only a perfect, sinless God-man can pay the price that we owe to God. So God sends Jesus to earth, then kills him to pay this debt. Now, with all theories, we have to look at the context, don't we? Anselm was writing at the time that the Western legal system was still being formed. There were no judges and juries at that point. If you did something wrong to somebody, then you had to pay a debt to them. You had to sacrifice something back to that sacrifice word again. Now, Anselm's theory starts to get a bit of prominence. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, after all, or had been. And over the years, a number of other theologians kind of agreed with this and then took it on a bit further, including a guy called John Calvin, who extended this a bit. Now, this is a bit where it gets a little bit technical, okay? So, Anselm said that Jesus's death was a replacement For the punishment that humans deserve. But Calvin said that Jesus' death was the penalty that humans deserve because of our sin. I'll say that again. Ansem said Jesus' death was a replacement for the punishment that humans deserve. But Calvin said that Jesus' death was the penalty that humans deserve because of our sin. I know this is a bit complicated. So imagine you owe somebody a thousand pounds. In Anselm's theory, you owe a £1,000, and Jesus pays it for you. That's the replacement. Calvin's theory says you owe a £1,000. You can't pay it, so you're going to be thrown into jail. Jesus takes the jail sentence for you. Jesus isn't just stepping in for you. He's being punished for what you did. I mean, there is... A real big issue behind this that we haven't got time to go into this morning, and that's the fact that the starting point for both Anselm and Calvin was that we all needed to be saved because we are inherently sinful. That's called the doctrine of original sin. Basically, the story is that because Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree in the garden and they sinned, all humanity is sinful as a result. It doesn't say this in the Bible. We haven't got time to go into the detail of it, but it was a theory concocted by a guy called Augustine in the fourth century. Like I said, we haven't got time to get into it this morning, but the Bible doesn't start with original sin, but with original goodness. God creates humanity and says, it is very good. Genesis 1, the very first chapter. So God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But despite verses like this, over the years, this theory of Calvin's penal substitutionary atonement has become the only show in town in Western churches. It's the only thing that we're taught about what happens when Jesus died. But there are a load of problems with it. Firstly, everywhere else in the Bible, God tells us to forgive without requiring a sacrifice. Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Or Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Or Luke 6, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And there are loads more examples of this throughout the Bible, which I could have pulled out. So throughout the Bible, God calls us to forgive other people, yet Jesus has to die before God can forgive us. If that is true, then God lives by a different moral code than God asks us to live by. And what's also true is that God lives by a worse moral code than God asks us to live by. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. The prodigal son story is the most obvious example of that. If you don't know the story, there are two kids, and the younger one wants his inheritance from his father early so that he can go off and live the high life. He takes the money, he does that, it all goes wrong. He ends up living uh, off food that he's meant to be feeding to pigs. He then eventually realizes he has no other option other than to come back home and say sorry. And as he walks around the corner, his father, who has been looking for him every day, sees him coming. And what does the father do? He says, well, I'll forgive you, but only if I can punish your brother first. No, he doesn't, does he? The father sees him coming around the corner, and he runs, and he runs towards him, and he immediately forgives him without needing any retribution whatsoever. So Jesus tells a story about the prodigal son, and yet we are to believe that God can't forgive like that. There are loads of other problems I won't go through. The Trinity is the idea that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one, but penal substitution seems to pit God against Jesus. Also, it's a violent God, and it's based on this idea that violence fixes problems. We call it now the myth of redemptive violence. If this is how God chooses to solve the biggest of all problems, by being violent, by killing somebody, then, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it, that Christians also then choose to use violence to solve problems. It's no coincidence that this theory came out in the 11th century, and in the 11th century, the Crusades started on, in November 1095 the pope called on western christians to take up arms to recapture jerusalem from muslim control which was the beginning of the crusades because of terrible theology like this and a thousand years later we still haven't fixed that have we Last week, it was 20 years since the beginning of the Iraq War, which, you know, was started when Tony Blair, a self-professing Christian, met with George W. Bush, a self-professing Christian, and they decided to take us into a war in Iraq. George W. Bush even said that God told him to do that. It's the myth of redemptive violence. And it's caused by theology like this. One more problem with it, which I'm not going to touch on too much because Steve will probably say a lot about this next week in the Christus Victor theory, but this makes God's anger the reason for Jesus dying, not God's love. God is angry and therefore has to kill Jesus. Steve will talk about this next week, but I think that God's love is the reason for the cross. But what I will say about this is that people who agree with PSA as a theory, they tend to love a bit of God's anger. This is a guy called Mark Driscoll, who used to be a mega church leader in the States. I've said this before in church, but I think he seems to have Jesus confused with William Wallace, Mel Gibson's character from Braveheart. But When he was still a megachurch pastor and not yet, as he is now, a disgraced ex-megachurch pastor, Mark Driscoll screamed this at his congregation during a sermon. Some of you, God hates you. God is sick of you. God hates, right now, personally, objectively, God hates some of you. The Bible speaks of God not just hating sin, but sinners. You are the problem. God doesn't just hate what you do. He hates who you are. God is an angry God, this version of the cross tells us. But that's okay, because we deserve it. That's what Mark Driscoll was preaching. If you hear nothing else this morning, if all of the complicated theology passes you by, listen to this. Mark Driscoll is wrong. God categorically does not hate you. God loves you. You are made, Genesis 1 says, in the image of God. God created humanity and said, it is very good. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever your story is that's brought you here this morning, hear that. God loves you. Jesus didn't die because God is angry with you. Jesus didn't die because God is angry with me. He didn't die because of my personal sin, but because of the sins of the people around him. Judas, who sold him out. The Romans, who wanted to shut down a potential revolution. The Jewish leaders who were worried about Jesus' popularity. Pontius Pilate, who could have rescued Jesus, but was too weak to stand up for him. Jesus didn't die because of my sin, but because of the sins of the people around him. Remember earlier when I said that this theory is a bit like someone thinking that we were the band oasis or someone describing a tree in the garden and not the house. That's because penal substitution is the only well-known theory which focuses on God's anger and not God's love. It's the only understanding of the cross which says God needs Jesus to die in order to appease God's anger. But every time I look at this story, I keep coming back to some core principles, to the absolute fundamentals of my faith. God, the Bible says, is love. God is love. And when Jesus was asked to sum up all the commandments, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not anger, not a blood sacrifice, no requiring death to forgive, but always forgiving out of a heart of love. So, what's the link between Jesus and the sacrificial system? I think it's this. I think. Jesus dying on the cross is the once and for all sacrifice. It's the example that ends the sacrificial system. It's the death which says this is not God's way. God's way is not about sacrifice. It's not about death. It's not about violence. I don't think we are saved by a sacrifice. I think we're saved from sacrificing. I think we're saved from the idea that the answer to bad violence is good violence. God is and forever will be love, love, love. There's one more part to this story. Because in first century Palestine, people claiming to be the Messiah were ten a penny. They would rise up against the Romans, claiming to be the saviour of the Jewish people. And then the Romans would hang them on a cross. And that would be the end of the story. But this story is different. Because three days after Jesus went to the cross as the perfect example of God's love, he then came back to life as the ultimate example of how love is stronger than even death. How love is stronger than violence. How in the end, despite all hate and violence has to throw at this world, in the end, love will win. It might not seem like that on a day-to-day basis at the moment. You might be living through a time where all you can see is darkness, where all you can see is Friday, the day of Jesus' death. But the resurrection story We can get stuck on the cross story, but the resurrection story is that however dark the darkness, hold on, hold on, because in the end, love wins an eternal victory. So as I end, how do we live in the light of this love? Because I think we all know that just because the cross and resurrection show this eternal victory, that doesn't mean that everything is well in the here and now, does it? So how do we live today in the light of this ultimate love? I think the death and resurrection of Jesus calls us to live radically and to love radically. I wonder how my life would look if every decision I made was born out of a real desire to live radically and to love radically what might that mean for the way that I spend my money what might it mean for the way I spend my time how would it change the relationships I have not just with my friends but also with those I struggle with if I really honestly prioritised trying to live my life as an example of this ultimate love I think it would look a bit like sacrifice. I think it might mean that I sacrifice some more of my money. It might mean that I sacrifice a bigger house, a better car. It might mean that I sacrifice some of my time. And I wonder if that's a sacrificial system that it's worth getting on board with.